to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The process of saint-making in the Catholic Church is an expensive and lengthy process. In fact, since the Vatican began keeping records, the average length of time between death and canonization is approximately 181 years, and the cost of canonization now runs about $500,000. The process of saint-making, which until recently was almost entirely unknown to me even though I grew up in the Catholic Church, is the subject of the brand new book, The Saint-Makers, Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith, which also features the life story of Father Emil Capon. The book was written by Joe Drape, an award-winning sports writer for the New York Times. You might be asking yourself how a sports writer finds the leap into the world of writing about religion, and we get into that a lot in this conversation. So it's really great to have Joe Drape on Classical Ideas. Joe is a native of the Kansas City area, and I'm a native of the St. Louis area. So we got along fabulously as we reminisced about certain Midwestern experiences. Interestingly, Joe is from the western Missouri area, and I'm from the eastern Missouri area, but Joe moved to the eastern New York area in New York City, and I moved to the western New York region in New York in Buffalo. So we swapped geographical sides in the same area of two different parts of the country, which I find to be a delight. You can find Joe Drape on Twitter, at Joe Drape. You can find his new book, The Saint Makers, out now from Hachette Books. It's really great, and I tore through it, and my interest never waned the entire time I was reading it, so I highly recommend it. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Joe Drape on The Saint Makers. Joe Drape, welcome to Classical Ideas. Greg, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'm delighted to have you here, Joe. Um, You have such an interesting bio. I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. I'm Joe Drape. I am a Kansas City native. I'm a sports writer at the New York Times. That is my day job. I've also written seven books, this one being the seventh, The Saint Makers. And this was my first departure from sports to go straight to a different subject. And it was an interesting story how that happened. But, you know, I've done it all in journalism. I started at the Dallas Morning News as night cops, Metro, uh, went to the Atlanta Constitution as a national correspondent, uh, was the lead reporter for the 1996 Olympics. So I feel like I am one of those rare surviving old school news guys. Oh, that is so cool. Well, I'm a big New York Times reader myself, so that's really just an honor to have you. I've had another New York Times guy, Sam Kestenbaum, over in the religion reporting section uh, on the show a couple of times. So it's fantastic to have another New York Times fellow on the show. So this is great. But I also know, since you said you're from Kansas City, so I'm originally from St. Louis, and I'm wondering if you are a Missouri guy or if you're a Kansas guy, where do you, where do you land over there on that side of the state? You know, I I cop out and go Kansas City, but I literally grew up a block off State Line Road out south. I had a sister who go to, went to Mizzou. I've had nieces and nephews. I got a nephew now at Mizzou, and I got uh, nieces and nephews that just got out of KU. So, 
you know, the most important thing from the sports background is I'm a Royals and Chiefs fan and a Jayhawk basketball, Missouri football. So there you, there you, I, I cover it all. <laughs> uh, well, having lived in Columbia, Missouri for many years myself, that is quite a, an interesting selection of a, a fandom there and uh, a big deal to everybody who lives in that part of the world. So that's really cool to hear. But uh, I lived in Columbia, Missouri for a long time and I was a public school teacher there. And this show, this podcast actually started out as a classroom project in my high school classroom when I taught in Columbia. So tons of connections here. It's really a delight to talk to you about Missouri and Kansas City stuff. I love it. So, um, Joe, can you tell me a little bit, we're going to get into your book here in a little bit, but I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your religious upbringing, because I'm curious what context you bring to The Saint Makers, the book that we're going to discuss today. You know, I grew up and I talk about this in the book. I'll call it a cultural Catholic. I went to parochial grade school, blue pants, white shirt, blue tie. I was given the fundamentals of religion of what they call the Baltimore Catechism that goes back to, you know, the 1500s, the 1800s. And the first question is, who is God? And there's a by-road answer. Uh, my folks were involved in our parish, and for the non-Catholics, that's sort of your, your church, your base, uh, where they usually have a school attached. I went to that school. Uh, my dad helped build that parish up, was on the building committees, was a member of the Knights of Columbus. I went on to an all-boys Jesuit high school, Rockers in Kansas City, which I'm sure mm -hmm. some of your folks know there. And, you know, the Jesuits opened my eyes to a different, all sorts of things beyond religion. I'm probably a writer because of the time I did with the Jesuits there. Uh, we went to Mass on Sunday. We tried to be there for each other. We embraced the community that were our friends and family. And, you know, I remember when I'd go to somebody's house, my mom would say, it's a small world. Whatever you do is going to get back to me. And Mrs. Hyatt or Mrs. Granoff, mm -hmm. they, they have the right to throw you through the window yeah. if you act up. So <laughs> that, 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 that was the way I was brought up. Uh, you know, and we're talk more about what happened in the day since then, but at least I'm consistent enough that my 15-year-old is paying for his sins of his father. He's at a went to parochial grade school. He is at the All Boys Jesuit here, Fordham Prep in New York. So, you know, it stuck with me enough to form my character, is what I'll say. Wonderful, because all of that to me is so important to the book that you have coming out because there's so much Midwesternness within the book. There's so much Catholicism within the book. And I just wanted to hear your situatedness within that story because I feel like you need the kind of background that you have almost to really dive into the very specific nature of the book that you did, which is really cool. So I know earlier you mentioned you're a sports writer for the New York Times, yet you have this awesome new book, which I read this past weekend, called The Saint Makers, Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. Clearly, this book is not about sports. You already mentioned that this is your first book outside of the sports world. And I'm sure you've been asked this a ton of times in the past couple of years since you've been working on this book. But why did you, as a sports writer, suddenly shift gears into the world of religion? Why did this shift happen? Tell me a little bit about the, the impetus for this jump into this new topic that you did. 
Well, you know, God's hands were at work here. And I only could say that now looking back. Mm. 2015, I have lunch with an editor of one of my earlier sports books, and we start talking. And he says, you know, you ought to try to step out of sports. I think you could do it. It'd be good for you. It'd be a good exercise. It would extend your brand. And since we're now in digital land and everything's yeah, yeah. brand. And he goes, what do you have in mind? And just the first thing out of my head was I heard about this priest in Kansas who already has won the Medal of Honor and they're pushing to make him a saint. And it just, it stuck in my head. And the reason it stuck in my head, and again, this, you're, you're very perceptive on the Midwestern list. Mm. 2008, I moved my wife and then three-year-old son to Smith Center, Kansas, which is north central Kansas, to write a book called Our Boys about this football team that had won 59 in a row when I went there. And mm. they ended up winning 69 in a row all wow. the way through. And what caught my eye about it was it was the anti-Friday Night Lights. They never talked about winning or losing. It was a small school. The kids were in the plays and on the debate team as well. Uh, and their two rules was love one another and let's just get a little better each day. So, you know, I was at the point where, you know, I, I was mid-40s, new child, way away from my Midwest roots and thought, okay, I need to find something to reconnect to who I am and figure out what this being a father is and, mm. you know, try to get out of the rat race and think for a little bit. So it brought me to this farm community, which I still get back to, and I have friends for life. Uh, and that's where I first heard of Father Capon. And, mm. you know, if you've been to the part of the world or any rural, it doesn't have to be Kansas. I mean, they're very stoic people. They mm -hmm. spend an awful lot of time alone, whether it's in combines or tractors or, you know, laying down seed. Uh, they're friendly, but not too familiar. They listen more than they want to talk. Uh, eventually, they will come out and embrace you as your own and tell you some things. But it's a very sort of reticent people, very grounded to the earth, very resourceful, very kind to each other. So, you know, it's the perfect place to go. And I think I got the first inkling of why people were talking about Father Capon. And, I, and I'll just tell your listeners right now, Father Capon was a country piece from priest from Pilsen, Kansas. Grew up on a farm, always wanted to be a priest, was smart, but wasn't rocket scientist smart, uh, was solid, was a decent parish priest when he went home to his home parish of Pilsen, uh, St. John Nipomucene, uh, but he wasn't really embraced because he was still, uh, you know, Bessie's son. He yeah, wasn't yeah. looked up as Father Capone. He didn't have the authority <laughs> in the community. And he found sort of his calling when they asked him to be an assistant chaplain at a nearby army base in the rural Kansas. And he really found himself there. There were men about his age. Uh, the Korean War was, he had entered at the end of World War II and served in World War II, came back, and then the Korean War heated up. And, you know, that's, whenever you're a journalist, as you know, you learn more things that you didn't know. You get sent down these paths. And basically, the Korean Wars are forgotten wars. Called mm -hmm. It was 
on the heels of World War II, the American dream was taking root here in the United States. There wasn't that coverage and uh, photographs and everything about you know, D-Day. That had already sort of fulminated and now people were quietly wanting to live without war. But it broke out over there uh, and it, the Chinese got involved. It's really when the Chinese first reared themselves as a world power. And it was incredibly brutal. And Father Capon was dispatched over there, fought for a couple weeks and was almost immediately captured. And among that, the, the time that he was there, he was just like something out of a war movie. He was brave. He was never left wounded behind. In fact, uh, when the war was over, they made a television show, sort of like combat on sure. there. And he really became sort of superhuman to his men. And the two things that marked him was he was a real man. He smoked a pipe. He, you know, he walked around with two canteens, jumped into foxholes with people, never really talked about faith, just would say, can you, do you got time to say a little prayer? You know, the Muslims loved him, the Turkish soldiers, the Muslims loved him, the Jewish soldiers loved him, the atheists loved him, the patriot, you know, the Protestants loved him. He just was a guy's guy that really related. And he went to this he, death march, you know, months long death march after he got captured to this most brutal prison camp, camp number five in Korea. And the Chinese didn't really want to take any prisoners. They wanted to kill everybody off. So it was starvation rations. It was no health care, uh, no food. And he immediately, you know, established himself as a leader by doing the little things, stealing food, mm. you know, sneaking out, stealing food to feed people, making tools, you know, so they could pan for water, building steps down to the river on the snow, uh, rigging up a, a commode you know there was nothing he could not do and he wandered that camp fearless and mm. you know the guards would tell him not to do things and he just would go on anyway and they were afraid of him so you know all those things is what i knew kansan saw in him and mm. they had been they had been following this guy you know for since the 50s i mean they talk about growing up with prayer cards in their mirrors above the sink that they would pray to to Father Capon. Uh, and that kind of later in my reporting, I figured out that's a key element of sainthood. Not only is it enough to be, to live a life of virtue that is worth imitating, you gotta be relatable, okay? You, we gotta see something in ourselves and who we are praying to as a saint or who are we asking for the help and intercession. So. You know, that was the thing that stuck in my mind. Uh, it came out of my head. I wrote the proposal. The proposal was accepted. And then one of my, you know, side beats that have been very good to me is horse racing. And two months after I signed the proposal, American Pharaoh wins the Triple Crown for the first time in 37 years. And they, <laughs> said, they said, go write that book first. So, nice, nice. Uh, you know, that book was done quickly. And that brought me back to figure out okay i'm in on this i promised i'd do this how am get how am i going to do it awesome i love it that's such a great backstory too um you begin the book 
about the life of Father Emil Capon with an anecdote about the saint-making project of another priest, Father John Hotze. Uh, so who is Hotze, and how did he come on to your radar in this process uh, while you were interested in the topic? Father John Hotze was appointed by the diocesan of Wichita, and that's basically the general office. You know, you, you think yeah. of the Vatican's up here, you know, they're the, they're the federal government, and there's state yeah. governments and county governments all the way through. Uh, he was a guy who grew up in that part of Kansas, had known him, not, not known of him, didn't know him, had studied canon law at the Catholic University of America, uh, one of the bishops saw this, this, this effort to become a saint started, you know, back in the 90s, and it would go in stops and starts. Uh, interest would run out, or the guy would get transferred to the next place, or it took more money. It just never could sustain a, a full effort. Well, there was a bishop in Kansas in about 2000 who said, okay, this is a good thing to do. This is something that our parishioners, our people would approve of. Uh, we think it's important. So who do we have out there to deal with us? And if Father John Hotze was who they landed on. And, you know, mind you, he had a lot of other things to do, too. Mm -hmm. He was still a parish priest. He was uh, part of their judicial system. But he picked up the ball. And the ball meant preparing testimony to this guy's life to wherever you could find it in his sermons uh in his family in the gis he served with there were biographies in korean war that named guys and where he came up in fact you know at the time what i found fascinating initially is at the time the war korean war ended and they released the prisoners a contingent came out of camp number five carrying a cross with a likeness of Father Capon on it. And the guy who was carrying it and made it was a Jewish fighter pilot who had gotten there long after Father Capon was dead. But that mm. was how much the hold he had on it. And so he's all over the newspapers. Uh, Saturday Evening Post, there's a big magazine article about him. You know, he had this burst of publicity. And then in my way of thinking was, he then just sort of disappeared. Time moves on. The saint-making process is glacial. The mm. average time from death to canonization is 181 years. So, um, oh, my gosh. So, you know, Father John picked up this ball, and, you know, and he, he will tell you that he had a lot of help. And I, I tried to convey he had a lot of help, but he was a little embarrassed that I made him sort of a, a figure in this. Uh, and he gathered up 8,682 pages of documents about Father Capon and sent it to the Vatican. And from that point, the first step is, you know, saying, okay, opening the cause for sainthood. But then you have to get a real canon lawyer. And a canon lawyer is just what it is. It's a, a, an attorney with specialized knowledge of how the Vatican works. All right. Uh, and again, I'm, if I'm getting in the weeds, forgive me here. No, it's fine. Go for it. Uh, the, that's expensive. You got to pay these guys to turn these 8,682 pages of documents into a briefer sort of, they, they call it a positio, P-O-S-I-T-I-O. 
but it's really a hagiography. It's just like the lives of a saint. Mm -hmm. And it, they got to put it in a narrative form. It then goes to a panel of historians to make sure it's in context. Then it goes to a panel of theologians to say, indeed, did he leave a life of virtue? All this time is expensive and it moves slowly. So somebody has to argue your case. It's like being a lobbyist, more or less, up there. So that's where it was up now. Right before the pandemic, he was going to move to the next step, which was you got to prove miracles. You got to prove a miracle now and a miracle after he is beatified. And that happened, unfortunately, four days between before uh, Pope Francis addressed the world about the global pandemic on Italy's worst day, on New York's worst day. It was mm. early March. And so that assembly got postponed. And so we're waiting on that right now. Interesting. Who introduced you to Hotsey? Did he, did you, were you able to find him directly and reach out to him or was he introduced to you through some other intermediary? You know, I, I did it the old school way that you and I do it. I read a bunch of clips. I saw his name came coming up. I called him up. I said, you know, I'm Joe Drape. I'm a native of Kansas City. I know about Father Capon. I, I'm writing a book about it. Will you, will you give me some time? And, you know, we had some conversations on the phone. I went down there and met him. Uh, you know, he and that whole diocesan of Wichita couldn't have been better about allowing me access to this stuff. And, you know, they also knew that this was part of the process, too, is that the more people know about this priest, the more attention he gets. You know, it's like running for office almost, Greg. There's a ground yeah. And if you can build awareness and, you know, get his name in the mainstream and on people's minds and on the tip of the tongues, things tend to move a little faster. Yeah, well, and something else that was really interesting to me when I was reading the book is that I got the impression that Capon is no ordinary Midwestern priest by reputation in the region. Like, if I think back on my youth of going to Catholic Church when I was a kid in the suburbs of St. Louis— there were priests in the parishes that I went to as a kid, but I wouldn't ever say that I was praying to them or anything like that. Like, so I feel like this priest, Father Capon, has reached a different level in like the lore of the region almost. Um, so like, I'm wondering why ordinary folks living in that region of Kansas would actually pray to Capon, because um, that's something that I don't know much about. Well, and the whole totally brief theology lesson. Sure. Anybody in heaven is is considered a saint. So, you know, you pray to your mother, your, your late mother, your late father, you're, you're asking them for help. The formal recognition is a community prays to a certain person who they want to imitate their lives and they're relatable. And so why did they pray to him? Because he was a man's man, a farmer's son, a listener, a doer, not a talker, not a great thinker, not a great pounded into your head sort of things. <laughs> he was a guy who saw goodness in others and emanated goodness himself. And he looked, talked, acted, and thought like him. Okay, so that's why you pray for him, and that's who you have your conversation with in your prayers. 
And again, I'm talking from hindsight here, and we'll get into this in a second. You know, it was very important to me. I, I got stuck at one point on this book because I had the detective story of the saints, of how you become a saint. I had this extraordinary life and a man admired by many people. But I was missing a connection. And what it finally dawned on me is I had lost my way to prayer or spiritual connection. And, mm. you know, I say that not saying I'm saved by any means now. I mean, right. it, that is not the case. But, you know, just like I wanted to go back to Kansas to be, learn how to be a father, I had to learn, okay, how to pray. And, you know, I sought out a lot of spiritual advice on everything from podcasts to books to little epistles to priests I knew and liked to old friends and you know I wouldn't like be my Yoda just I was like well how do you do this you know how do you pray and why do you pray and why do you think it's important so that became sort of the third rail of this whole project was how am I going to connect with both priests the material and my own God, I guess, you know, and I, you know, I'm a sports writer. It's kind of difficult for me to talk about <laughs> things like this, but uh, authentically, that's what it was. Awesome. Well, and I, I got the impression from the book that you really threw yourself in to the content as well. Like, I think that your own learning and your own research process just screams at me off the page as I'm reading it. And, you know, I think that you learned a lot about the road to sainthood. Like some things that you taught me in the book was that the road to sainthood costs hundreds of thousands of dollars and often takes many, many years. And I'm curious if you could go a little more into detail about that four-step process required for getting into the congregation of saints, because it's such an ancient tradition at this point that uh, I think that a lot of people would really like to know specifically what goes on behind the scenes in order to make this happen for somebody like Capon. Well, it's evolved over the years, and that's what I discovered. I mean, you know, 10 centuries, nine centuries, you know, right after St. Peter, if you, if me or you lived in Topeka, Kansas, and we saw Father Capon, and we say, he's a great man, we're holy men, he's a saint. It was just sort of by voice book. Uh, that's why you have a lot of saints that really nobody believes, nobody knows why they're saints. St. Jude, the hope the saint of hopeless causes, he's mentioned once in the Bible. Mm. Nothing's, he's never really done anything or saying anything. St. Christopher, the patron saint of travel, he comes from an old legend. Uh, he was a giant who lived besides a river who a hermit told his calling in life was to be the ferryman, to carry people across this raging river. One day he carries a toddler over. It's the most excruciating pain he's ever been in. He barely gets there. And when he drops him, the toddler says, you know, the reason you struggled is I am God and you had the world on your soldiers and shoulders and salvation. So mm. but there were things like that. There's even a saint who's a dog that out in the south of France. So, you know, about the 1500s, the, the popes decided, okay, we got to put some Form, formality and regulation. It should be our decision, not just anybody's decision. So they started putting in rules about it, uh, you know, authenticating miracles, putting them through panels to study, uh, to one, the first miracle has to be to get beatified is because there was a medical case that 
defies all medical or science explanation on a remarkable recovery. And that occurred because the friends, family, and community were praying to Father Capon or whoever that might be right now. And that's miracle one. That gets you beatified. That gets you on the doorstep. And then after that happens, another miracle has to occur, you know, tomorrow, a hundred years, somewhere in between, same set of circumstances. That gets you canonized. Now, this was a pretty, it, it started with four miracles. So that's why it kind of slowed way, way down. Gotcha. Uh, John Paul II was the guy who kind of put it on steroids. Uh, he took it down to two miracles. All right. He also was an evangelist by nature. He liked being out. Okay. He liked being part of a tour. He went to more countries than all his predecessors did combined. He sainted 482 people, wow. which was, which was way more than the six and seven before that. Uh, he sort of realized early that it could be a marketing tour to tools that, you know, people wanted superheroes. He kind of made them the Catholic church's superheroes mm. and said, okay, we got a shortage of priests. We've got a shortage of nuns. Maybe our message isn't getting out. We've got, especially in Latin America, the evangelicals are swarming the place with missionaries and they're finding a willing audience. So, you know, we've got to be very uh, aggressive, a little more grassroots at it. And so he put in the process, he made it simpler and less expensive for poorer parts of the nation. You know, and there's stories that he would have a trip planned to go to Ecuador and he'd call over the cause of the saints and say, who do we have in Ecuador? And, you know, how close is it? So he really decided, he really kind of put a modern bent on it where not only virtue mattered, but demographics, you know, Latin America was needed a lot of work under his tenor. Now Asia and Africa are high target things. Uh, geopolitics, I mean, you know, there's a recent case now of this Italian 15-year-old Carlo Acutis, who died in 2006 of leukemia, who's Italian, and his he would hunt down miracles he got a viral following hunting down miracles on the web and he's been fast-tracked and i'm sure he's worthy but part of it is the church being able to say we have a computer savvy 15 year old millennial and that's a demographic they haven't hit very often. yeah so you know all that thinking kind of went into it and the expensiveness of it i mean you know it's a very specialized niche, okay? Yeah. If you are a established order like the Jesuits, you have your own postulator. That's what they call them over there in, in, in the Vatican, outside the Vatican. So you're, he's just living the life as a Jesuit, representing Jesuit causes, and nobody's paying him other than you know his regular Jesuit salary. But when you're a place like Wichita, the diocese of Wichita, when you're a place in America, basically all the Americans really have to go find a canon lawyer to represent them. And the one that uh, Father Capon has is Dr. Andreas Ambrosi. He was the first lay 
Canon lawyer allowed to do this? And he has law in America. Father Flanagan, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, uh, you know, he's the go-to guy here. And if you think about it, Greg, it's a long process, a lot of paperwork, a lot of billable hours. Yeah. And so the, the meter runs up on these things. Yeah, it was really wild to learn about the amount of money that it cost. But I loved when when Fulton Sheen came up in your book. I've talked about him before on this podcast. I loved learning about Ambrosi's role and his collaborations with Hotzi on that. And I also know that the process was streamlined a little bit recently, right? As far as like becoming a saint, like wasn't there a reform that happened um, fairly recently as well? Well, there's some some different. Uh... I don't know if it's reform as much as some relaxing of the rules. Pope John was let in on one after only one miracle. Mm. And that was because they decided that he lived a life of holiness and miracles in an ecclesiastic law, not a divine law. Basically, if they want you in, you can get in. All yeah. right. And, that, and that's what happened. And they started doing martyrs, martyrs in mass. And again, for your non-Catholic, Martyrs died defending their faith. And so, you know, you could put 892 guys, men and women in who were fought in the, in the Turkish Empire and, you know, got martyred in there. So uh, that's pumped up the numbers. That's relaxed it a little bit. Uh, the fact that it's looked on more as a uh, way to spread the word has relaxed it a little bit. And, you know, at some point, it's going to relax a whole lot more is my feeling after diving into this world for five years. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious about your research process for this book because, you know, you essentially shifted fields entirely. You went from sports writing into like religion reporting. And, you know, I know that reporting it has a lot of similarities across different fields and specialties, but this is such a brand new thing. Um, I'm curious about your, your travel, your archival research, interviews that you did. Tell me about your process, where you went, who you met, some of your favorite experiences along this journey of putting this all together and learning about this for yourself. Well, you know, I approached it and I, I talk about this. Reporting is just like searching for faith. It's a search. So you start as wide as you can. So you know, I read everything I could find about Father Kabat. You know, and there's two older biographies. I found a 1953 Saturday Evening Post written by one of his fellow prisoners who was instrumental in getting him the Medal of Honor. Uh, I got to take a look at some of his work through Father Hotze. Uh, I read about the Korean War. I didn't know anything about the Korean War, so I had to go dive into that on that. Then I started to talk to the people. You know, once you feel, once I felt like I had a wide base of knowledge about this, and just a workman's one, you know. Sure. I mean, what we do for a living is go in and say, I'm about ready to ask you the dumbest question in the world, but <laughs> forgive me, that's what I do. And, you know, that's what we do. We ask questions, and I usually preface that way, you know, you probably know this, but my readers are not going to understand this. And so, you know, that's all I wanted to that point. Then I started interviewing people, the, the people, the two young people who were the subjects of his miracles, you know, Father Hasse extensively. Uh, and then I went to the Vatican. I went to Rome. And I, my biggest regret is I never went to Italy sooner than I, than I did the 2018. It's, mm. a, it's a breathtaking place. It's uh, 
history, culture, uh, just not faith, the Colosseum, the food, the people. And, you know, I set up appointments with who I could set up. I knew there was a postulator for the Jesuits. I have a Jesuit friend, Father Martin, who is somewhat famous in these worlds as a writer. And, you know, I picked his brain for several lunches and interviewed him. I said, okay, who's your guy over there? Because I wanted to have somebody walk through the process who was not invested in the process. You know, he just told me how to jump through the hoops and things. You know, Dr. Ambrosi was generous with his time. I spent time with him. Monsignor Sarno is a uh, uh, the, basically America's man in the causes of saints. He's the guy who basically is the, you know, deal maker or the, the man in the Vatican for the American saint causes. So, you know, that's, that's how I dove into it. And, you know, my favorite experience was walking into St. Peter's and seeing, you know, just like you were, I was a three-year-old, St. Peter on this church, I built my rock. And right in the middle of there is his tomb, okay? And that's his church. That's the leader of my faith, all right? So that that is like about as hands-on learning as you can have right there. You know, the Pieta, learning, seeing that, and it's just a beautiful piece that moves me, moved me deeply, and I think it moved other people. And then I discovered it's the only thing Michelangelo ever signed. Hmm. And that tells you a whole lot of it. Uh, just the whole sense of discovery and you know, the, for the spiritual aspect, reading different people, uh, reading about con contemplative monks, the aesthetics, you know, spiritual retreats, how to pray, you know, all these things, the lives of other saints. What, what basically unlocked me, Greg, was my brother gave me this little, it comes out monthly in print, but it's on an app. I have it in the app. It's called Give Us This Day. And so every day you come up and there's some psalms, there's a reading in the morning, there's uh, some petitions, you know, things to pray for, there's a reflection from somebody, it could be a 5th century monk or it could be from Martin Luther King, there's uh, Lives of the Saints, 300, 400 words top about various saints, usually of that feast day. And you can kind of graze of it on a buffet of how, how much you or little you want to do. So, you know, it, it kind of gave me a little bit of, uh, it polished my edges, I guess, as I went through this. Would you say that this experience of putting together this book and doing all this research, like sort of connected you to your roots as well? Do you feel like grounded after going through this experience? Uh, yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a tentative yes. Okay. Because, uh, you know, what I discovered, and it shouldn't have been any surprise to anybody, but I had a couple moments where I should have been smarter than I was. But <laughs> one, one is, it's really hard to be a saint. It's really hard to be good, okay? And, you know, I can be present and try to be authentic and try to connect. But when my son doesn't turn his homework in, <laughs> you know, you a lot of that goes out the window, okay? Yeah. You know, when you're self-absorbed in your work or when life is just throwing fastballs at you. I mean, 
everybody has the same million excuses I have. And, you know, first of all, just to what I feel I accomplished, achieved was the consciousness to try to be present in every moment and every day to recognize the good in other people and to try to be good yourself. Now, do I fail on daily on several of those points? Absolutely. But as you know, a Jesuit priest had told me, he's like, that's, that's okay. God gives you the next day. Jesus says, do better the next day. So you got, you got a chance to do it all over again. So to me, that's a very simple thing I grasped on. And then the second, the thing that preceded that epiphany was I'm sitting with Father Jim Martin, this well-read. Yeah, I was going to ask about James Martin. That's great. Yeah, and, you know, I talked to him, uh, you know, for your listeners, he's a, a Jesuit written best-selling books. He's amazing. Yeah, and he's a a really nice guy to boot. And I had called him for a sports column about was it morally wrong to enjoy the Super Bowl as much (laughs) as we do with what we know about concussions and injury and the whole deal. And I go through my spiel. I cold called him. He did say mass up at my parish on occasion. And he goes, you know, before I answer that, I want to tell you that I grew up in Philly. I'm an Eagles fan and I'm going to watch the game with my mother and my sister. And so we hit it off and we wrestled that problem down. And then in my searching, I called him or I emailed. I said, look, can we have lunch? I want to talk to you. So we set off a series of lunch and one of them, he asked me, he goes, do you pray? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, how do you pray? And he said, well, I said, you know, our fathers, fail Marys, stuff we were taught, active contritions. Uh, what do you pray for? You know, and I said, nothing really, you know, just in gratitude. And he set his fork down and he said, you know, how would you feel if your son was worried or upset about something? Wouldn't you want him to come to you and ask for help? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, you know, that is what prayer is, is asking God for help. And then he goes, have you tried praying to Father Capon? And it was like, check, please. Because, you know, it hadn't even dawned on me to do that. And, you know, that's when people get balled up. Now, it turns out I went to the expert, James Martin, on this subject, because he has a book coming out in February on how to pray. So you ought to have him for your February uh, podcast. Well, maybe I will. I see that on his Twitter right now. The book is called Learning to Pray, and it says it's coming out soon. So that is really a wonderful idea, if I do say so myself. I would love to have Father James Martin on this show. Um, so, you know, a few other things that came up in the book, you know, since we're Missouri guys, there's some Missouri in this, in, in this book, too. Like, I noticed Conception Abbey came up. Kenrick Seminary came up and I know where these places are. I've been to them. My grandma lived around the corner from Kenrick Seminary for years and years in Shrewsbury. And did you go to any of those places at all? Did they figure into your trips in any way? I had been to Conception before just on other things. Yeah, it's amazing. I I didn't make the trip this time. Now, the connections, and that's again why I think something other than my genius was at work here because Kansas, yes, I had a background. I didn't realize when I started this that Father Capon was Czech and lived in a Czech community. My father 
whose people are from Czech. He's mm. first generation here. Uh, my mother's family is farmers from rural Kansas. That was one thing. When I was looking up to tell a story about my first impression of a priest who was the Monsignor who ran our parish, I looked up his obit and bio, and he had to be at Kenrick and Conception at the same time as Father Kafan. And I just thought, wow, mm. that's, you know, they, they must have overlapped. And, you know, in those days, there were only like 15 or 16 kids in these schools at a time. Yeah. And, he, you know, he was the total opposite of Father Kapon. He was an old school, wore the cassock, had a German shepherd named Rex that <laughs> always had his side, and he would come out and throw rolls of coins up on the playground and send us all scrambling, <laughs> you know, to, to scoop up change. So, uh, you know, those little connections kind of kept me going as I made, made it through. That was so cool because I had so many memories of like driving past Conception or driving past Kenrick on the way to my grandma's house when I was a kid. And I was just like, all these memories were flooding back. I was like, oh my gosh, Kenrick Seminary. And it was just so wonderful to see personal things in this book that resonated with my actual life because it just kept me going through it. Page Turner. It's just like, oh my gosh, that, re that resonates. Boom, that resonates. That resonates. So I just like kept going through the book because it's so profoundly Midwestern in so many ways. And it just touched my entire life in so many ways. That was just so, so cool. Well, um, so we've talked a lot about, you know, your, your current book that's coming out, The Saint Makers Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith, which is everybody should check out for sure. Do you have any uh, like timeline of other projects that you kind of have in the pipeline? Do you have any other, could you see yourself diving into more religion oriented work in the future? You know, yes, I can, but has it dealt or shown itself yet? No. I, I've messed, I'm adapting a couple books for screenplays of mine. Oh, cool. And, uh, you know, I had an epiphany watching my mighty chiefs take, take apart TB12. I was like, <laughs> why hadn't anybody written a chief's book, a Mahomes Andy Reid book? And uh, nice. I said that I on the couch and my son was like, yeah, yeah, let's move back there and do that. Uh, but you know, these things, and I tell people who come to me and want to, who are thinking about writing a book or, you know, looking for reassurance, I say, make sure you love and are curious about the topic. Yeah. Because it's going to be with you a long time and it's going to be discouraging much of it. And if you don't, if you're not curious and driven and just on fire for it, it's going to be work. And, you know, work is work is work. And you sit behind your microphone. This is not work for you. No, it's not. And this is what my reporting and writing and journalism is not work for me because it is something I'm doing something I want to do about things I want to know about. So, uh, you know, you sound like my agent whenever anybody, <laughs> you, you just finish a book. You're like, man, <laughs> man, it's like what's next it's like man let me take a little victory lap or something yeah when is the book coming out too i know that the official release date is in the coming weeks right uh december 1st oh tomorrow. fantastic so tomorrow congratulations on the release date that is really really fantastic well um joe this has been a really fantastic uh 
chat with you. I've just absolutely loved this. I really think that everybody should read the book. My favorite thing about the book is how smooth of a read it is. It doesn't like it's a page turner. It, it kept me going. I didn't struggle to get through it um, like I do with some books. It, it's just Im immensely readable. Uh, very clear. The story is compelling and fascinating. I learned so much church history while also learning about uh, the process of sainthood and everything that goes in that. And also the life story of this compelling figure, um, Father Emil Capon. So I'm just, you know, your book has was hitting on several different areas of interest for me. And I just was delighted to read it. And I'm really glad that we had this opportunity to chat. Do you want to tell everybody who's listening where they can find you if they want to follow your work, uh, they, anything like a website or social oh, media yeah. or anything? First of all, thank you for those kind words. And oh, you're I, welcome. You know, you, again, you're perceptive. A, it's a Midwest sensibility that you obviously share. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a sports writer. I'm a storyteller. I'm not a theologian. <laughs> I am not, you know, a uh, spiritual guru. So you just, I try to understand things and convey them in the way I want to read them. Okay. I loved it. Uh, it's called The Saint Makers. And I always got to look for the long subtitle, The Saint Makers, Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. It's at your local bookstores, your Amazon. You can follow me at Twitter, on Twitter, at Joe Drape. That's at Joe Drape right there. Uh, you know, I'm not a blue check mark. I'm not a website guy. I don't even have a Wikipedia page. But, nice. You know, but I still do what I do. Well, I think I found you on Twitter the other day and I gave you a follow. So I'm delighted to, uh, to see your work in the coming months. And I'm excited to watch your journey as you get out there and promote this book. And uh, yeah, I will be posting about this on Twitter. So I will tag you in the coming days. But Joe Drape, this has been an absolute delight. So thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Greg, you do a great job. Fun to be here.